Good evening, and thanks for joining me and us once again. We're uh, excited, thankful to have you here. Um, I want to just share a couple things with you before we look into Luke chapter 9. Uh, there's a couple of announcements we've been giving here for the past few weeks, one of which is that uh, we are looking into starting a new membership class in the, the very near future. Several have come and expressed interest, and we want to let you know that if you would like to get to know about our church a little bit more, you're welcome to join that class. Uh, really, our membership class isn't so much uh, take the class and automatically become a member as much as it is a get-to-know Grace Church of Mentor. Uh, it's a very informal time where you interact with Pastor Tim and, and others. Uh, there are other folks who are learning about the church, even asking questions about doctrine, looking at our church doctrine, looking at why Grace Church is and does what she is and what she does. So if that's something that you would be interested in, please see me or contact our church office. We're assembling the details for that uh, very soon. So we'd like you to uh, be a part if, if you haven't done that before. Also, next Sunday is the first Sunday of October, and what we like to do on each of the first Sundays in the month is to celebrate the ordinance of baptism, where people who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior identify publicly with the body of believers in this step of obedience. So if you've never been biblically baptized, we would encourage you to take that next step of obedience. Uh, please contact either the church office or one of the pastors and let us know so that we can enjoy that. It is a blessing to hear how God changes lives and to see them uh, in testimony. You see uh, those individuals give testimony of that change and to celebrate this ordinance. So that will be the first Sunday of October, as it is really the first Sunday of, of every month. Well, let's pray. Thank you again, and we will look into God's Word. God, we thank you for our time together. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. I pray that what I say would be biblical and that it would be clear. I thank you for the privilege to open up the Bible and to explain it, to preach it. Lord, I thank you for the privilege that we have to hear it, to abide by it. We thank you for the other pastors and the other teachers here at Grace Church who do this faithfully on a daily basis. And Lord, I thank you for the congregation who comes and who is more than just hearers of the word. Lord, I praise God that by and large our congregation are doers of the word. I pray that as we look at Luke 9, and as we see a, a costly passage, a passage that costs us much because it causes us to truly take measure of who we are as Christians and what we signed up for, as it were. I pray that we would be honest with ourselves. May the Holy Spirit have free reign in our hearts. May he convict us of where we might fall short. Lord, would he even convict those who perhaps have a profession of faith but do not have true fellowship. I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, if it would be your will. But these things I ask in humility, knowing that you are good, knowing that your way is perfect and your plan will be fulfilled. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 9 here for these next few moments, and we're going to be in verses 57 through 62. I want to ask a question before we look at Luke 9, 57, verse 62. I want to ask this question. Does becoming a Christian make your life better? 
Does becoming a Christian make your life better? I think we understand what it means to become a Christian. But maybe that word better needs definition. If you're saved, I want you to think of the moment that you accepted Christ and what changed. What changed for you inside of your head? What changed inside of your heart? How you looked at life? And we could say, yes, becoming a Christian makes my life better. Not only that, it makes it worth living. But can I ask you a question? Can I ask you this question in light of not so much the internal change, but the external change? The impact that becoming a Christian has on life around us. So, for example, I want you, these next few moments, to be thinking of someone dear to you that doesn't know Christ. Okay? Get that person's face in your mind. I want you to think of that person. I want you to think of what their life is like on a daily basis. I'm not talking about them being lost or lacking purpose. I mean, that might be true, but I don't want you to think about that in this moment. I want you to think about what their life is like as they wake up each day, as they go about their daily routine, be it work, be it school, be it jo- uh, hobby or, 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 or different jobs around the house, uh, wherever they are in their season of life. I want you to think of their life. I also want you to think of the people around them, the people that they interact with, maybe family, friends, coworkers, children, Um, From a day-to-day standpoint, what type of things would change if God gave you the opportunity to lead that person to Christ? So I'm thinking of a friend. Um, I'll I'll change his name, change the name to protect the innocent, right? I'll change his name to Doug. I used that a couple weeks ago. I'll use Doug again, okay? I'm thinking of Doug, and I'm thinking of his life, and I'm thinking of how he currently lives it. And I'm thinking of what would change if Doug accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior? Well, first, I know that his relationship with his wife would change because Doug and his wife don't know Christ. So what he talks about with her, perhaps what he prioritizes, what comes up in conversation, I'm pretty confident that would change. And I'm pretty confident that it might be greeted with enthusiasm, maybe that he found God or found religion from her perspective. But I could also see it being greeted maybe with hesitance, maybe with a sense of um, what's happened. I also think of Doug and his relationship with his children, where the things that he's done to prioritize uh, parts of their life, their extracurricular Activities, maybe their 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 schooling, their um, you know being a part of of sports leagues or being part of just community groups, things that they do with their extended family. Those things are are going to look different now. Doug would be talking to his children now uh, about spiritual things that his wife isn't talking to them about, and I could see that causing a, a level of of Disruption. I could also see Doug and his extended family because they're very, very close, especially close with his in-laws. And I know Doug's in-laws are pretty religious, but they're of uh, the Catholic persuasion. And in fact, Doug's children recently have just gone through confirmation and, and first communion and, 
and, and those type of religious things. And now, Doug, looking at, at things maybe from a different lens would, would perhaps call into question whether those things are even needed, uh, how valuable they were. Perhaps Doug and how he looks at his parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and their religion, and how they viewed spiritual things would now be questioned, perhaps, by Doug. I don't know how Doug would live it out, to be honest with you, but I do know that it's not going to be easy. It's now going to be really different. Now there's going to be some tension. You know, what's true of a, a Christian when they are made spiritually alive is that they were at one point in time spiritually dead. And is there two things more different on the earth than a person who is spiritually dead and a person who is spiritually alive? A lot changes when we become followers of Jesus Christ. And some of you hearing this know full well the pain that comes with some of that change. When we think of what conversion looks like, when we pray for souls to come to Christ, do we really understand what we're praying for? In Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, Jesus addresses three different would-be followers. And he addresses not just them, but the crowd that was surrounding him. Because they had seen his signs, they had heard his teaching, they were admiring, they were, they were awestruck. And now, he's making it quite clear that for a person to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it would cost them their life. That's what we're going to look at today. The cost of being a follower of Jesus Christ. So we're in verse 57. And I'll read verses 57 through 62. We're going to look at uh, uh, all of these verses, but I want to read the entire section just now. As they were going along the road, this is Jesus and the disciples, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now take note here, this word follow shows up three times. Some by would-be followers, some by Jesus himself. That word follow can have different senses in the Greek, but here the sense is not just, oh, I will go where you go, like I'll kind of, you know, walk behind you, and if you decide to, you know, head over to Capernaum, well, I'll follow you over there. No, the word, the, the sense here for follow is, I will be your disciple. Or when Jesus says, follow me, he's saying, come and be my disciple. Really, what he's calling for is discipleship. So in verse 57, this man or this person says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, 
is fit for the kingdom of God. In your Bible, you might have a little title underneath this paragraph. Um, mine says, The Cost of Following Christ. That's where I got the title for my sermon today. The Cost of Following Christ. Uh, another, this, this Bible that I'm using here says, Exacting Discipleship. Like if something is exacting, it, it, is, it, it takes, it demands something. So what I want to do here is I want to look at these three different individuals, and I want to look at what being Christ's disciple means. Okay? So first of all, in verses 57 through 58, being Christ's disciple means letting go of comfort. Being Christ's disciple means letting go of comfort. When I was a kid, I would go to camp. I was a big camp guy. I went to camp as a kid. I was a camp counselor as an adult. Um, and what camp would be worth its salt unless it had a big tug of war, right? Every camp has to have a tug of war. Well, in a tug of war, there's different strategy. You know, the camp veteran kids, those kids who've been there before, you know, they know how to play each game. They're the ones that spoil it for the counselors, you know, those kids. I was one of those kids going to camp. And so we had this tactic for tug of war, where if we saw the other team was going to beat us, we would have this tactic. And I'd try to tell the other kids, all right, when you take the rope and they say go, just let it go through your hands. And so the other team, what would they do? They'd hold on to that rope, and they'd get tight, and you have the anchor in the back. And, and when, they, you know, when the person says go, or they shoot off the gun, and, and, and what do they do? They yank on that rope very tightly. Well, we thought it would be, I thought it would be a great strategy on my team you know, if we just hold the, hold the rope lightly. So when the other team pulls, they all of a sudden get knocked off balance. Then you can grab the rope, pull it, and win. Little strategy, kind of shady, but hey. What I wanted my team to do was not hold on to that rope so tightly. Let the rope slip through your hands. That's a picture of what Christ would have his disciples view, or how Christ would have his disciples view comfort. Not something to be held on to tightly at all costs, but rather have it something that could very easily slip through one's hands. And that's what he's saying to this individual who says, I will follow you wherever you go, in verse 57. But Jesus says, the foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Earlier in this chapter, we see Jesus telling those, those disciples, those who were following him immediately. In verse 23, Jesus was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? You know, I think about modern evangelism. Evangelism in the 20th and 21st century. 21st century. What are we telling people when we share the gospel with them? And we describe the gospel as something that simply makes their life better. 
Now, it's true. When Jesus shared the good news of salvation with some, he did say that he would give them life. He did say that, that they were missing something and that he was what they were missing. But mark my words, Jesus never shared the gospel with an individual and shared it in such a way that caused them to view it as a moment, instantaneous, impulsive decision, which often can take place in evangelism contexts. What do I mean? Well, for Jesus, having an atmosphere where people were somehow led to make a, a moment decision, where they were, where they were driven perhaps through, the, through, through an emotional message or perhaps through an, uh, you know, maybe music or an extended uh, um, invitation or something to that effect, where, where they were making an impulsive decision that they needed Jesus right then and there and then not need him afterwards. But the fact is, is that when Jesus calls a person to discipleship, when he calls them to follow him, he's calling them to a lifetime of self-denial. A lifetime of discomfort. When we're saying, hey, accept Jesus, and those marriage troubles that you're having, they're going to work out. Accept Jesus, and that addiction you've been battling, he'll help you conquer that addiction. Accepting Jesus is not simply getting that peaceful, easy feeling. No, becoming a disciple of Jesus is to understand that it costs them their life. Now, this is not to say that comfort is somehow wrong or that a Christian should never enjoy comfort. Really, I think James does a good job of helping us to understand the role of comfort. James chapter 1, if you uh, would turn there. And look at verse 17. It says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Interestingly enough, this is in the context of the Christian enduring trials. And he uses this passage of every good and perfect gift to describe actually trials. But let's say it actually has a broader scope, where it refers to literally every good thing that we can enjoy. Comfort. Well, it comes from God, right? And we see that in other passages of Scripture. But I'd also like us to look just a few chapters over in James chapter 4. You see, the way we ought to approach comfort is much like how we would approach any other plan that we might make. Look at verse 13. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there and engage in business and make profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just the vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Now, again, this is uh, uh, not necessarily in relationship to comfort. It's talking about man's making plans. And in particular, a Christian making plans under the umbrella of God's will. If the Lord wills, we're going to do this and do, the, do that. Okay, so here we are in a very affluent society, enjoying comfort. I'm in an air-conditioned room. I have relatively new clothing on. 
I have a belly that's relatively full. I haven't missed a meal for a while. I'm going to go home and have a roof over my head. And I think all of those things are, are pretty much true for all of us, right? We live in comfort. But the fact is, is that if the Lord wills, we will have that tomorrow. And if he wills, we won't have that tomorrow. And when you see what Jesus says back in Luke chapter 9, foxes have holds, birds have nests, son of man doesn't have a place to lay his head. There were times where he did have a place to lay his head. He stayed at Peter's house. There were women who helped provide for his ministry. But there were also times where he did not have a place to lay his head. The comfort that we let go of is directly related to us following Christ. One author put it this way. No one who commits to following Christ and does so lives a life of ease. No one. If your Christianity has not brought discomfort to your life, something is wrong. A committed heart knows the discomfort of loving difficult people. The discomfort of giving until it hurts. The discomfort of putting oneself out for the ministry of Christ and his church. The discomfort of a life out of step with modern culture. The discomfort of being disliked. The occasional sense of having nowhere to lay your head. But Christ's rewards far outvalue anything lost by following him. And so we see being Christ's disciple means letting go of comfort. But secondly, we see that being Christ's disciple means submitting to his priorities. Let's look back in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. In verse 59, he says to another, follow me. That man said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Boy, Jesus sounds pretty harsh here, doesn't he? Allow the dead to go bury their dead? You know, commentators really wrestle with what it is that's actually going on. This person who Jesus approaches, different than the, the person earlier on, right? Jesus goes to this man and says, follow me. Well, what was going on in this man's life? Well, one of two things. Either A, many commentators would say, well, when he says he's going to go bury his father, really his father hasn't died yet. This you know, in this context in, in Israel, it would have been an extended process where the man would have been staying by his father until his father died and then closed the estate and it could have taken anywhere from a few months to a year. Other commentators say, well, the man's father had actually died and frankly, if it meant that much, or perhaps if it was that significant, why was he there with Jesus in the first place? So maybe he had in fact died, and Jesus really was making this demand on him. The fact is, though, and, and this is what is so wonderful about Jesus, and this is also so wonderful, wonderful about looking at a passage of Scripture and interpreting Scripture with Scripture. 
One thing we know about Jesus is that Jesus knows what is in the heart of man. And he knows what's in the heart of this man. Let's look at John chapter 2. It's important to, to, to make this observation. Jesus knows what is in this man's heart. Look at verse 23 of John chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew that the heart of the Pharisees, he knew the heart of the Pharisees when they complained in Mark chapter 1 where the paralytic was lowered through the roof and Jesus tells that paralytic, your sins are forgiven. He knows what's in the heart of the Pharisees as they grumbled with one another. He knows what's in the heart of the disciples that just a few verses earlier in this passage, he's telling them that he's going to be delivered and the disciples are arguing amongst themselves about who will be the greatest. Jesus knows what's in their hearts. And Jesus knows what's in the heart of this would-be follower when he says, let me go first to bury my father. And he told the man exactly what he needed to hear so he might understand the true nature of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And in this circumstance, Jesus elevates two things above the circumstances surrounding his father. Put differently, Jesus asserts two things that are of higher priority than what this man was saying. Those two things were, follow me, and go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now you still might be thinking, the man's father possibly passed away. I mean, isn't this extreme? Well, submitting to Christ's priorities will always address our greatest needs. Even when in the moment we think other needs are greater. Let me say that again. Submitting to Christ's priorities will always address our greatest needs, even when in that moment we think other needs are greater. In this circumstance, the man would be following Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, and he would be proclaiming the kingdom of God, which is life eternal. As we look at our lives, we will always find things that need to be done or at least need to be resolved before we really can commit to serving Christ. Isn't it funny how that works? Often those things crowd out the service for Christ. And I'm going to make a, a point here that is, is worth making both now and a little bit later. I'll, I'll, I'll state it a little bit differently later. But I don't think this passage is in here accidentally as it relates to this would-be follower and his relationship to his family. Because what I mean when I say we'll always find things that need to be done or need to be resolved before we often commit to serving Christ, when I say that, often those things revolve around the family. For example, well, our kids just started school and we're getting back into the schedule. 
You know, we need to look after our parents and their health as it's more frail and they need more of our attention. Hey, you know, we're in that stage where we just need to see the kids and, and, and the grandkids and, and they have events that, that it's important for us to be at. Our extended family's in the area and they're very close-knit and we want to keep the relationship strong with them, especially for witnessing's sake. You know, None of these things are bad. In fact, all of them, we would say, are good. And, and frankly, if you're finding yourself saying that, praise God. However, when you add all of this up, what time is left for following Christ? None of these things are bad. But are they crowding out your role in the body of Christ? Well, let's... How do we answer that question? Well, let's make a point of comparison here. Let's be, you know, very specific as we make this. When was the last time you sacrificed a time with your family in order to serve Christ, to follow him? When was the last time you sacrificed a time with your family or those close to you in order to serve and follow Christ? And I'm going to ask that question a little bit differently. When was the last time you sacrificed time of service or time with your spiritual family in order to be with your biological family or close-knit family? Put a different way, what's expendable? What is it that is easy, easier to dismiss? Jesus was making it clear to this individual that discipleship requires prioritizing Jesus even above what we consider to be immediate priorities at that time. And when he asks us that, he will never call us to be negligent in what our responsibilities are. He will never call us to violate one aspect of his perfect will for another aspect of his perfect will. But he will call us to prioritize. So we see being Christ the disciple means letting go of comfort. Being Christ's disciple means submitting to his priorities. And finally, being Christ's disciple means leaving behind what you've left behind. Being Christ's disciple means leaving behind what you've left behind. Back in Luke chapter 9, verse 61, he says, Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, one of the most mind-boggling stories to me in, in the Bible is reading in Exodus chapter 16, where Israel has just walked through the Red Sea. Um, they've just celebrated the, the um, judgment on Egypt. And there they are in the wilderness, and they go a few days without water. And they start complaining. And in that passage, they describe life back in Egypt. And the way they describe life back in Egypt, like there were fool pots, they never went hungry. It was as if they left the country club to, to go to, you know, a third world country. 
the way they describe Egypt being this wonderful place. It's amazing how quickly they forgot. You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, as uh, the author of Hebrews is describing these Old Testament saints who by faith did incredible things. He says in there that they understood, these Old Testament heroes understood that they had been called to become strangers and exiles on the earth. There was a better country that they were called to, and there's something better that that Christian has been called to. Now, as we look at the circumstance here in Luke chapter 9, it seems reasonable for wanting to say goodbye to those people at home. What's wrong with this request? Well, when he tells the Lord that he will follow him, he makes a qualification. He was with Jesus, and he should have been willing to follow him without exception and without distraction. I want us uh, briefly to look at Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, for a similar circumstance. In Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16, we have the story of the rich young ruler. This one who comes, who desires to know how to earn eternal life. And, and really the short of it is that Jesus challenges him on his wealth. Your wealth is an idol. Didn't say that, but in so many words he did. And the man left, not being a disciple, or unwilling to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he had much wealth. And the disciples are saying, who can be saved? I mean, if a rich man can't, who can? And Jesus says, with anything, with, um, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, with people, this is impossible, but with God, the, all things are impossible. And then Peter, in verse 27, makes the statement. Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And you know what? Jesus doesn't rebuke him for this question. In fact, Jesus answers it. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, those that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit, shall sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And look here at verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Back in Luke chapter 9, we see the man's family factor into his perceived ability to follow Christ. However, as we look deeper into this, this really wasn't so much that his family was an obstacle as much as he was looking for their approval or perhaps he would not go without their approval. I mean, what if he had gone home, said goodbye, and they said, what do you mean goodbye? What do you mean you're following this Jesus? Wait, 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 wait. Let's, let's sit down and talk about this for a moment. You know, I think about what the conversations were when Peter and Andrew and James and John, when, when Jesus calls these fishermen to follow him. I wonder what the conversations were like when these men went home and talked to their families about it. Yeah, I know we have this family business in fishing, but this man, Jesus, who has done these 
amazing things and is saying things that we've never heard anything like it. He has called us to follow him. We must be followers of Jesus Christ. Would that have been at the expense of providing for their family? I mean, would, have, would their wife and children go destitute? Christ would not call his disciples to be negligent to their family responsibilities, but he would call them to prioritize him and to not revisit those things that entangled them before. You say, his family was an entanglement? No. But there are times where our families aren't on board with us following Jesus Christ. Why else would Jesus say in Matthew 20, 19, verse 29, why else would he say what he said? And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake, why else would he say that if it weren't a possibility? Being a follower of Christ means that we leave behind that which would keep us from wholeheartedly following him. Now again, this is the second circumstance in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus addresses a would-be follower and explains the cost of discipleship. And part of that cost is not making one's family an idol or an obstacle to following him. This is the second circumstance. Now, as I think of Grace Church, I think, a lot of, I think of a lot of families. You know, I, I think of Grace Church, you know, obviously families like you have immediate families, but you also have extended families. You have family members that have perhaps grown up, got married, had children of their own. Perhaps parents have come. And so many times you have multiple generations worshiping in the same church. What a blessing that is. What a blessing it is to see God using those individuals to build up the body of Jesus Christ, to grow in the Lord, to worship with one another. That's a blessing, isn't it? But let me ask you this question. In light of the cost of being Christ's disciple, how dependent is your commitment to Christ? How dependent is it on the presence of your family, especially here in this church setting where so many of us have family members in the church? I mean, seriously, what would happen if those family members that currently attend this church, that are currently serving the Lord, no longer did that? What if they started to live in a way that found offense for your zeal, for your service, for your investment in following Christ and being a disciple maker here. What would you do? How would you respond? If they went, would you too? Or if you went, would they go? You see, we can make families an idol by virtue of caring more about what they think instead of what Christ would have us think. You say, no, 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 that can't happen. That would never happen. It has. And by God's grace, you will be an instrument of sanctification even in your family. Your testimony of Jesus Christ 
will speak to them and show them a pattern of obedience that will cause them to give glory to God and grow themselves. That's what we would all want. But what about your other brothers and sisters in Christ? I mean, when we walk into this building, there's a reality that while I may have biological family, I mean, my parents go here, my wife's parents go here, I have siblings that go here, But all of you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not a demotion of my biological family. That's a promotion of the spiritual reality. The fact is, I'm going to be spending eternity having a brother-sister relationship with all of you who know Jesus Christ as Savior. I don't know if I'm going to keep my last name or not. I mean, that's even true of my wife and my children. My sanctification does not hinge, is not dependent exclusively on how my wife or how my children are obeying. Am I responsible for that? Yeah, I am. But I can't just put things in a holding pattern, make excuses for why I shouldn't be investing in what God has called me to invest in, that is God's word and God's people, simply because my family might not like that. Being a disciple may cost me the things that and the people that are, are, are biologically the most dear to me. But again, what Jesus has called us to, the priorities, and frankly, the new relationships and the new path that he is calling us to, far outweighs what has been left behind. And by God's grace, if there are souls that aren't following as they should, would they see our example? Would they see our love for Christ and in turn be prompted to then follow? That we would trust God. Some of you are doing this on a weekly basis where you have a spiritually mixed marriage because of one of you accepting Christ and your spouse hasn't accepted Christ. And on a weekly basis... Sometimes a daily basis. You're making decisions that prioritize your relationship with Christ. That's not easy. That's, that requires faith. That we trust that Jesus really isn't just off his rocker here. Do we appreciate the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ? Or is it something that we have to make our life more comfortable, more meaningful? Do we really understand that when Jesus says that anyone who would seek to save his life will lose it? But anyone who would lose his or her life for my sake, they will find it. Do we really believe that to be true? 
I had one pastor describe this, or, or, or one individual describe this. You know, he was talking about how, as a Christian, you know, things were becoming more difficult as as his life went on. And he was actually this was this was a pastor that was speaking to us while while, while I was in seminary. And he made the statement, he's like, you know what, I really thought that was hard, and then I got older, and it just seems to be getting harder. He's like, I, I'm just, I'm just going to tell you the truth, it only gets harder. Things only hurt more. It will only cost you more until you die. You know, if we, if we evangelized in that way, you know, I don't know that, that we would make a whole lot of followers of Jesus Christ, but, but maybe that's not the point. Maybe the point is that when Jesus says, follow me, it really is in our eternal best interest, and it is about his glory, in that our identity, our significance, and everything that this world treasures, prioritizes, is found in him and not in us and not in our priorities. As I read this passage, as a 21st century American middle class individual, I really have, have to, not had to, have to and continue to have to take stock in my following of Jesus Christ knowing that it may not get better. In fact, it may just get worse. It may get harder. It may cost me more. That a life of ease and a life escaping comfort is not discipleship. And if left unchecked, I should question whether or not I'm even a disciple to begin with, if that's really what it's about. But, as was said before, what God calls us to leave behind, what God calls us from, he more than rewards by what he's calling us to. The fact that he would call us at all, what a privilege. What a privilege. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Instruct us from your word. Remind us, Lord God. And... It's with this, Lord, we do echo the Apostle John, come quickly. But if you don't come quickly, God, may we persevere. May we endure hardship for your name's sake so that we might be found holy and blameless before you. Help us, Lord, to not fall prey to the idol of comfort and ease Help us not fall prey to the, uh, to the idol of our priorities. And Lord, may we love as Jesus loved. In those last moments on the cross, he loved his mother. He cared for her so much that he saw John care for her. Lord, you aren't calling us to have some distorted, skewed relationship with our families. You're just calling us to make you first. And if it costs us more than what we're comfortable with, then to realign our system, realign our perspective to yours 
and trust you. May we continue to do that for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. Please be in prayer. I'd say pray for me and pray for us as leadership that we live out this. And pray for one another as, as your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that, that we continue to walk as disciples of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ counting the cross. Thank you. Have a wonderful evening and a good week.